Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Tennis players have been let out of quarantine today. There have been matches, there have been all sorts of stuff going on over in Australia. Uh, we've been up at the crack of dawn to watch all of it, um, but we're going to leave conversation about it until Monday when there are about 28 simultaneous tennis events going on all at the same time. Um, and what we're going to do is conclude... Australian Open relived because we've had three wonderful opportunities to talk about Yvonne Goolagong and the 1988 change from Kuyong to Flinders Park, Pat Cash and his sadness at never having won the Australian Open. And then yesterday, Pete Sampras's tears of 1995. If you haven't heard any of those, what have you been doing? Go and listen to them. Press pause on this one and go and listen to those. Um, and if you have listened to all of them, well, I think we've got a lovely way to conclude the series with 2017 and dipping into Matt's memories. And the beauty of it is that Matt wasn't on the podcast in 2017. We hadn't had Matt Roberts Day yet. He hadn't become an on-air presence. He, he did where, exist, though. <laughs> he At least he was alive. Where were yes. you, Matt? What were you doing? I was living in Madrid, I was I was on my year abroad at university, living in a, a tiny box room in a flat in the centre of Madrid. And yeah, this tournament, these two weeks are just just my happy place. I was I was teaching English and because I was in Spain, I had some slightly unusual working hours where I worked from 4 p.m. until 10 p.m. And the rest of the time was for sleeping i did i did some of that and for watching the australian open and i did a lot of that uh so <laughs> yes this this tournament is very fresh in my mind and i've actually done the research twice for this episode because the first time i did it i deleted it all by accident and had to do it all <laughs> over again <laughs> yeah we we've had 
We've had one of the one or two challenges in the making of this podcast, which is currently two minutes and thirty seconds old, um, because uh, Matt had to do his research twice, and Catherine was delayed by an hour and a half because of cat vomit, which no. turns out turns out because of a typo <laughs> that was actually car vomit. Um, car and, vomit by a dog, to be yes, clear, by a dog. Yeah, yeah. so that's she, Billie she's Jean. She's an uneasy passenger at the moment. Yeah, um, but uh, so we feel for, for Billie Jean, but we she's all right now. F- well, she's shivering on my lap, having had a oh. bath to clear up the clear up the debris. Okay, <laughs> right. oh, and well, that's let's... a drill in the background. Oh, lovely, it's, cursed, it's all happening. This podcast, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but well, it kind of fits because Roger Federer's arrival into the 2017 Australian Open was somewhat uncertain and not exactly as planned um and things worked out all right for him so i'm going to take the you know the positives for the sake of this podcast yes it's a good draw because we're all in the draw (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) exactly right uh this podcast's going well because we're on it um now Matt was in Madrid in his box room. Catherine, you and I were both in Australia. I was there for BBC Radio 5 Live. You were there for Eurosport at the time, reporting. And I assume we were doing daily editions of the tennis podcast. I mean, I have no idea how we were doing that without Matt, but I, I mean, seems like we were. Yeah, Can't I remember, too much I about remember it, so few of them. So, so few of them. I, I remember. Oh, that's the drill again. Um, I remember. I remember you were doing all the editing. I do remember oh. that you were staying up and doing all of the editing after we'd recorded, and it was all I could do just to stay up to record the thing at the end of play, and then you would disappear um, and stay up all night editing and uploading the thing. Mm. And that, and then, and then I think shortly after that. We decided to look for an intern. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Matt. Um, But I mean, I think that actually that that sums it up really because, yes, maybe I was up all night every day, but it wasn't a problem because that particular tournament was so full of moments, so much adrenaline was running through every day of that draw, so much happening that I can't really remember feeling it being a problem i i just it was just i was riding on a wave of of excitement because it was i'd say you know i mean i think i've probably been to about 16 or 17 australian opens i think that that, that must be the best one overall um just for, for completeness of storylines it was like two weeks full of that day we had at the australian open last year where we had to record two podcasts it was like the tournament was sort of caught in its own slipstream and had this additional force behind it that was that was pulling it along and you know i've i've certainly been on site and had days at tournaments where it felt like that where there's this snowballing effect of great match after great match that one at the australian open last year i remember a day at queens a few years ago where all the top three seeds followed each other onto centre court and out of the tournament. David remembers that day less fondly. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming out in a cold, cold sweat just thinking <laughs> just about thinking that. Thinking about Andy Murray Thanks, losing. Um, but yeah, the whole tournament was like that. You went into every single day expecting 
something brilliant and dramatic to happen and that's that's such an incredible feeling to have i uh, i was going through my phone for hashtag content from that fortnight in 2017 and there's a lot of it there's a lot of photos of me just looking like i can't believe my luck um which will which will spare you from um but there's also an awful lot of videos of crowds reacting to things in garden square which really age so badly it's like trying to take a photo of the stars at night isn't it like (laughs) you just have to be there and see it with your own eyes you you can't capture it forevermore certainly not Mm. on a phone camera anyway and yet and yet i tried to do it on multiple occasions apparently in january 2017 but because it felt like there were so many moments where i'll need to remember where i was and what it felt like when this thing happened usually that's you're lucky if that's once per tournament that you need to indelibly mark a moment on your on your brain Mm. um but i i probably had four, four or five awful videos uh of of that genre on my phone spare you that mm. spare you from those as well i think <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but i know what you mean <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, anyway. I mean, and they're all the same it's just yeah. loads of people standing around going oh or oh yay <laughs> i've never understood you know why is it when you're at a football match people seem to be taking more interest in filming something that they could be watching with their own eyes rather than through the camera lens of their phone i know i'm I'm, I'm a terrible cliche and i'm ashamed of myself yeah i was younger then (laughs) (laughs) sorry we've all done it Catherine. i did the same thing but i'm just trying to work out why i do it anyway let's move on because what we're going to do we're going to leave an indelible mark on your brain with this podcast i hope of that tournament and we're going to do it by handing over to Matt to start us off and take us through chronologically through that tournament. I think that's probably the best way to do it because that's the best way to bring home how many twists and turns and surprises and big moments there were. So off you go, Matt. Thank you. Yes. Well, I can confirm that you did do daily podcasts because I've I've been back and listened to not quite all of them, but a lot of them or certainly moments of a lot of them. And before we really get into the tournament, I just I just had to start with your draw preview show where where you <laughs> where you had Simon Briggs on. Don't worry, this is this is someone else making a fool of themselves. Um, <laughs> And this this clip of Simon is just Simon at his best. I think by reliving this tournament, we're not only reliving the actual tennis, but we're reliving the experience of covering a slam on site. And one of one of the things you have to do when you're on site at a slam is get Simon Briggs on the podcast. And this is just him at his best. And it, I think, encapsulates both the madness of Simon a little bit. We love Simon. Um, and also the madness of those first few days before a Grand Slam when jet lag is sort of kicking in and everything's a little bit mad. Simon is a little bit all over the place. Let's speak to Mr. Simon Briggs from The Telegraph, who's been here a few days. And Simon, you should by now be thoroughly over jet lag. How's it going? Uh, completely the opposite direction to that. And no thanks to the Lawn Tennis Association, who decided in their wisdom last night that they were going to announce the departure of Chief Executive Michael Downey at, I think it was 
2 p.m. English time, 1 a.m. for all the uh, tennis reporters in Melbourne, and then followed by a conference call at 1.30, and that was kind of the last straw in a week, which has left me extremely tired and emotional. I'm about to take somebody's head off. If you say anything I don't agree with, you're going to get a flamethrower, I can tell you. I need encouragement. I, I am struggling, but I, I should actually add that as well as being potentially angry during this podcast, I, I also described, well, I spoke to my news editor in London on the way into this t- this um, draw this morning. I can't even talk straight, can I? <sighs> and uh, by accident, I called him Darling. Um, which wasn't actually my attention at all. It was like that moment at school when you call you call the teacher dad. He's quite a grizzled um, chap from you know north of England. So he either thinks I'm, I'm a lovey or I've got a concealed crush on him now. <laughs> Simon Briggs, the Telegraph's tennis correspondent there. Still the Telegraph's um, tennis correspondent. Very much so. And uh, still calling his news editor darling, no doubt. Uh, the the unexpected gold you find (laughs) yeah oh simon i've forgotten that one um so that was our draw preview yeah and i think i think it's worth saying on this draw preview so much of the focus is on andy murray he is he's the world number one he's just coming off his Incredible run at the end of the 2016 season where he'd, I think he'd won 25 matches in a row, clinched world number one in the final match of the season. Um, and of course, he's never won the Australian Open. He's lost in five finals. There's so much talk about this possibly, surely being the time for Andy Murray. Yeah, yeah. I think it felt like Andy Murray's time generally, didn't it? Because of that run at the end of the previous year. And he was back with Lendl. He was the Wimbledon champion. He was world number one. He'd beaten Djokovic. He'd got Lendl with him and and they'd, they'd gone off and they'd made big claims about what sort of an off-season they were going to have, which in hindsight now looks quite jarring, really, doesn't it? Because I think that may have done him some damage. What, what do you remember about all that, Catherine? Well, it, it was... The first slam where he'd gone in as the world number one. Um, mm. And and worth saying also that Joe Conta went in on a tremendous run of form. She won Sydney the week before mm-hmm. um, and she teamed up with Wim Fassett in that, uh, in that off-season. And I remember doing an interview with Patrick Moratoglu for Eurosport on the eve of the tournament and he said that Joe Conta was the person in her half of the draw that Serena Williams was most worried about. So if you told me before the tournament, when all of our talk, all of the focus of our coverage, all of our excitement, which was as high as, as it's ever been for me covering a Grand Slam, that both Andy Murray and Joe Conta would lose you know, Andy Murray obviously startlingly early, relatively, and Joe Conter okay, a quarterfinal run, but she was being talked about as a potential champion. If you told me that neither would make the semi-finals, I'd have thought this is going to be a total letdown of a Grand Slam. You know, I had really high hopes for that tournament, and obviously they were fulfilled and more, yet in a completely different way mm. to to what any of us were anticipating which is pretty extraordinary, really. Mm. And I, th- I think that's the defining feature of this tournament. It took you to unexpected, exciting places. Um, just to run through a few more of the key players, 
going into that tournament. Murray had actually lost to Novak Djokovic in the Doha final at the start of that year. Djokovic was in this weird place where he was still getting quite good results, but not actually playing that well. But he'd, he'd beaten Murray in a three-hour match in the Doha final, 6-4 in the third. And then, then there was Federer and Nadal, who had been out at the end of the 2016 season. Federer uh, missed the Olympics. He missed the US Open because of his knee surgery. And he came in to the Australian Open as as the 17th seed. And as as Catherine's already said, he, he gave that line, it's a good draw because I'm in the draw. He was, he was really playing down his expectations, his chances. He sort of said quarterfinals would be, would be a good result for me here. And then you had Nadal, who similarly had been through, been through quite a slump for a couple of years. His form had really dipped. He hadn't won a Grand Slam since the 2014 French Open. He was the ninth seed. He, he, he was the, kind of his lowest ebb, but still in the top 10. Uh, he'd brought Carlos Moya on board and first tournament of the year, he'd been okay in Brisbane, but he'd, he'd lost to Milos Raonic. So expectations were not particularly high of, uh, of Rafael Nadal either. Mm. Any idea what what we were thinking predictions wise? Oh God, would, would happen at all? I bet we all said Andy Murray would win, didn't we? Yeah, you were you were <laughs> confident in Andy Murray, but very very understandably. And actually, you two, I'm going to throw Simon under the bus again here. <laughs> you two were actually thinking Federer would get to a quarterfinal match with Murray. You were you were both quite confident that Federer wouldn't be that rusty he would be able to be okay he'd played quite well in the Hotman Cup I think Nadal you were a bit more split um someone used the words Alexander Zverev is a future world number one and Grand Slam champion and I think he will beat Nadal uh that would be you Catherine fudge (laughs) well could be true could Could, still happen could, could still happen something something to look forward to did, did, what did everybody else say when I made that declaration? W- was there nodding or did everyone go, ooh, that's a bit bold? There was general approval of that, of that There was comment. optimism around him at the time. Mm. It was so he, high. He, it, you know, people did think it was coming. And frankly, all the evidence was that it was, including in this tournament. I mean, this is where he made a bit of a mark, wasn't it? And and he backed it up with all sorts of Masters 1000 tournaments. So, you know, it wasn't Everyone then had the attitude... I'm trying to, I'm trying to mitigate my uh, idiocy, but uh, everyone had the attitude of it's only a matter of time. Yeah, it's very it, it is written. And I think, mm. you know, he, he, he had a touch of that attitude as well. Hmm. And just the sort of symbolic statement about where Federer and Nadal were at the time is that they had opened Nadal's academy together in Mallorca in October and the plan had been for them to play an exhibition match, but neither of them was in in a position to play. Nadal struggling with his wrist, Federer coming back from his knee surgery. That's October 2016. They couldn't couldn't even have a little hit and giggle. And here we are in in January, and obviously we all we all know what happened. So it just I just think that line really sums up how improbable this was. Uh, and what about Serena and Venus at this point? 
Yeah, so the women's side, Angelique Kerber is the top seed. She's coming off that in- incredible 2016, which saw her win two slams and Olympic silver. This is before we had uh, enough data about Angelique Kerber not being able to perform mm. in uneven <laughs> years. Yes. <laughs> 2019, we were all over Angelique Kerber, sort of <laughs> yeah. knowing what would happen. <laughs> um, and Serena was very much... Obviously, among the favourites. Um, among, was... among them, not a heavy favourite. I'm trying to well, remember how much of a, a, a favourite she was. She, she'd slightly lost a bit of momentum at the end of the 2016 season um, when she she lost to Pliskova in New York. Then she didn't play at all. And then her first tournament in 2017 was her infamous first trip to Auckland where she hit 88 unforced errors and lost to Madison Brengel and described the conditions as abhorrent. It's not a good day that, is it? No. 88 (laughs) unforced errors and a loss to Madison Brengel. Although Madison Brengel had reached, it was the previous year's Australian Open that she had reached the quarterfinals or at least the fourth round. That was when I cuddled the koala with her. (laughs) I really associate Madison Brengel with success at the Austra- with unexpected Australian success for that for that reason. Mm. Um, and then Venus Williams didn't have a whole lot of form either. Uh, she she'd also been to Auckland and she'd beaten the world number one thousand and ninety nine Jade Lewis from New Zealand, a wild card in the first round, but then pulled out of her second round match against against Naomi Osaka. She thought that's that's all any all the practice I need. Got got my big win. <laughs> Off I go. Well, she was right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Jade Lewis the ultimate uh, hitting partner Ava- available available for hire. I-, I don't know if she is. <laughs> but what I would say about Venus at this point in her career, she is showing up at slams 2016 round 4 Roland Garros semi-final at Wimbledon. Round four, US Open, lost 7-6 in the third to Pliskova, who would reach the final. So I think Venus Williams fans were still in that stage where they're extremely happy and appreciative that she's still playing. But there is also a bit of expectancy that that she can have some results, um, especially if a draw were to open. Who did we all predict to win? And I would like to include Simon in that to hopefully... (laughs) distract attention away from our predictions (laughs) do you know i can have to admit i didn't i didn't make it to the end of that podcast to to get your final predictions but i think you were mainly talking up serena okay yeah i'll take it of course we were Mm. we we definitely went for a serena win i can feel it can you (laughs) Uh, anyway can you ever remember saying mentioning on air david the possibility not the prediction the possibility of a Brit double. Because I remember daring to mention it off air in conversations with producers and so on, just sort of, you know, it's not for like the first time in anyone's lifetime. It's not ludicrous to say the words. I don't, I'm trying to remember if I ever would have said it on air. I I can't remember either. think so. As as that tournament was going on now, I think um, Contra had beaten Radvanska, hadn't she, in the final of that Sydney tournament Mm. and just looked sensational. And looking through Matt's day-by-day chronicling of this tournament, there are memories that come back to me of when she 
beat Naomi Osaka and then absolutely thrashed Caroline Wozniacki. Mm. And when she won those, I thought she could win the whole thing. Mm. I really did. I thought, and 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 we'll you know we'll get to what happened in the quarterfinals. But but that the quarterfinals came as a surprise to me. The way the mm. weight ended mm. up happening, and Murray coming into this tournament, uh, as you said, he he'd played Djokovic in Doha. He'd he was having good early round success. Um, reading here that he he played uh, Andre Rublev, a qualifier in. in on day three and lost just five games you know he's he's doing what he should be doing at that sort of stage um so i i can't remember catherine whether whether i would have said that but but thinking back i was very confident in the way murray and Conta were playing and like you said at the start, if they if somebody had said they'd go out in the fourth round for murray i would have thought that was absurd mm. and for Conta, knowing that Serena was likely to be that opponent in the quarterfinals, I think, you know, you're still the sensible thing to do is to still make Serena Williams the favourite. But I thought Conta was playing well enough to have a real chance, a real mm. chance. Um, and actually, it's it's looking at day one. I mean, I, I, I really remember the first round and the second round of Federer and how unconvincing he was. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've got here, Matt, that, that he played... Jürgen Meltzer, similar sort of age player, another junior Wimbledon champion the following year, I think, from Federer, actually, 99. Um, but that it was a rusty performance. It was four sets. And then he played Noah Rubin in the second round. And I, re- I remember those rounds and thinking, crikey, he looks... I mean, he looks good considering what he's had to come through, but he looks nowhere near what what he will need to be to, to make serious progress. Um, is that how it came across to you? Totally. And I was really, really struck by something Federer said in his press conference after that first round match against Meltzer. He said, I was practicing fine. The warm up was fine. And then the first game, I was so nervous and I just hit four frames immediately. He said, oh, this is this is not going to be as easy as I thought. That's so <laughs> a classic Federer line. And um, you absolutely agreed. Watching those two first matches, you never would have thought that Federer would find the form that he did quite quickly, actually. We'll, we'll get there, but certainly those first two matches, Federer is looking rusty. That's, that's one of the mm. big stories of those first few days. I don't want to. I don't want to spoiler things for anyone that's sort of on the edge of their seat and has no memory of what happened in 2017. But with the benefit of hindsight, it now looks like it was the absolutely perfect draw at every round for Roger Federer, and that that might be sort of editorialising things after the fact. But it was just the right amount of test at each stage, mm. I think. Yeah, no, agreed. Um, just to just to quickly run through a few other things which happened in the first few days. The very first result on the Rod Laver Arena, talk about setting the tone for the tournament. Shelby Rogers beat number four seed Simona Halep, 6-3, 6-1. That is not a match I remember, I'll be honest. I, no, I didn't no. remember that happened. Uh, I don't. I think I remember walking through the gates on the first day... <laughs> And uh, and so the, that big screen at those gates you walk to by the 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 nearest entrance to the media centre. Um, I, I remember seeing on the big screen. Oh goodness, 
that's a thing that's happening. Um, yeah. Must get in earlier. <laughs> Future <laughs> note to self. Yeah. Um, Serena beat Belinda Bengcic in her first match, and I, I remember that being a statement performance. Bengcic, former top ten player who had had some injury troubles, dropped down the rankings a bit, but was dangerous. And Serena was was really good in that performance. Um, Ivo Karlovic played the longest match in Australian Open history in terms of games. He came back from two sets down to beat Zabayos, 6-7, 3-6, 7-5, 6-2, 22-20, which is just one of those classic early round Grand Slam matches storylines. Now, I remember that vividly. If there's because, anyone out uh, there that saw all of that, well, I, uh, tell us. Well, it was we a were, tall we, man and David was, was commentating <laughs> on it. Well, th- we, we were... That what happened was that we were doing. I think we were doing the other matches on the other courts because you know you don't exactly put Ivo Karlovic on your schedule of matches to commentate on as such. And it was on court sixty-eight or whatever against Horatio Zavias. And but when it went into the fifth set and it started to go sixteen fifteen in the fifth, and he's come back and he's you know he's nearly forty years of age and all the rest of it, and then he ends up winning. They they decided to get me to watch that the end of that match and to to sort of let them know <laughs> when it looked like the end did. was coming <laughs> and and i always remember that he was incredibly animated at the end of it in a way that you just don't associate with Ivo Karlovic whatsoever and I remember my commentary got clipped up and got stuck out on social media because I I said Ivo Karlovic is on is going to be out tonight watch out nightclubs he's ready to celebrate because he looked like he was high-fiving members of the crowd and he looked like he was up for a big one after that win what a thought yeah, well, he looked he looked ready. He looked ready for fun, um, and a hell of a win. <laughs> One of those moments when you're clipped on social media for a for a good reason. Yeah, yeah, I've had my share of the other. <laughs> I think we all have. Um, and then one of the other stories of these of this tournament of the first few days is is Dan Evans again. This is something I'd slightly forgotten about um but on on day three dan evans knocked out marin chilich in four sets uh for what at the time was his first top 10 win at a grand slam it's still his his only top 10 win at a grand slam what are your what are your recollections of 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 dan evans in that tournament i remember we we had requested a win only uh on-court flash interview with dan evans and that Chilich match, and it was played on court number three, which is my favourite court at uh, at the Australian Open. And um, after he lost the first set to Chilich, I, I kind of wrote that one off in terms of my mental schedule of where I might have to run to and be based and sort of be on alert for. And then sort of suddenly the tide started to turn and I suddenly realised I needed to be on red alert for what was happening on court number three. Um, and remember watching the latter stages of it in the tunnel um, just at the entrance to the court but you could only see you could only see in a, one of the players at one end you couldn't see where the ball was coming from or going to so I was going I was sort of reading the score and how it was unfolding on the basis of the body language of whoever was down that end of the court at the time 
Um, I remember it was extraordinarily hot. I remember interviewing Dan Evans after the match and it was it was a really good interview really really good interview um i remember i remember sort of asking him um i bet you're busting to check your phone and see how many messages you've got and um he said yeah one one or two probably <laughs> I, I remember the, more the next match when when he played bernard tomic and Ooh, he beat yeah. him and and he had a run in i think with bernard's mm-hmm. box his dad or or certainly his people in his box Th- there was aggro um, going in though wasn't there yeah yeah uh, and then after it he gave one of the all-time great press conferences i mean and i'm what? not I, I don't feel like i'm exaggerating because um, there were journalists there like Mike Dixon, who's been to 25 years worth of press conferences, and he he was acclaiming this. And I mean, for a start, Evans was very emotional. He was paying tribute to his his former coach who'd passed away, Julian Hoffelein, um, a, a, a year or two earlier, um, and he he was. He he was just having us in hysterics as well. First of all, he was just being completely open, you know, about all of his own past failings and and wanting to put things right and all this. And then he 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 told everybody this tale about how Kevin Peterson had blanked him in the Crown Casino oh, yeah. a couple of nights earlier, uh, and he'd gone up to him and said, "Can I have a, can I have a, a picture?" And Kevin Peterson, the cricketer, had just said, "Just carried on walking." So Evans, having won three matches at the Australian Open, just tweets Kevin Peterson, um, maybe, "Maybe next time you can." S- you can stop for me uh, when, when I asked for a picture. And Peterson was uh, having to do some severe damage limitation on Twitter. Was this the tournament when Dan Evans was Son's shirt sponsor? I think so, yeah. And he had to go down the local supermarket and just buy a load of plain white T-shirts. <laughs> yeah, I think it was, yeah. I remember doing a, a flash interview with him on, uh, well, it, I think it was still called High Sense Arena at the time, at now Melbourne Arena. That he played that match against uh, Bernard Tomic, and and I and I mustered up the courage to ask him about the aggro with Tomic, expecting him to sort of play it down because he'd got the win by that stage, and he totally stoked it up. He basically said the verbal equivalent of "Yeah, well, that's two fingers up to him and his awful team, isn't it?" It was, <laughs> it was brilliant. And the aggro going in was that Bernard Tomic's team didn't think Dan Evans was good enough to have as a practice partner yeah is that right which is a mega diss isn't it it really is yeah yeah um pop quiz question who was who was due to be dan evans's doubles partner at the 2017 australian open nick kyrios yes because they'd played together at the previous u.s open Mm. and that had been a a very short-lived treat (laughs) when you say due to be did it not happen no, it didn't. It didn't happen. Oh. Um, I think partly because Evans was having a run in the singles, and partly because of what happened to Kyrgios. And the context for Kyrgios is that he, this was his first tournament back after his suspension at the end of 2016, which he got for tanking that match in uh, Shanghai. Uh, he, he took a two-set lead on Andres Seppi in the second round and then lost uh, the last three sets 6-4-6-2-10-8 on the high sense arena and it was it was an ex- exhilarating match but Kyrgios got booed off um, because the Australian fans didn't think he was trying by the end and 
Speaking of interesting press conferences, Kyrgios gave quite an extraordinary press conference where first it was put to him that John McEnroe was on the commentary and McEnroe had said that he didn't think Kyrgios was trying. Kyrgios did not enjoy that line of questioning or those <laughs> or those comments from McEnroe. He made some very sarcastic comments saying, John McEnroe, good on him, great career. And then someone Ooh. someone asked him, are you still consulting a sports psychologist? Is that person here or on the phone? And Kyrgios said, yeah, I am. Ask Johnny Mac. He'll know. Talk to him. He knows everything. Ooh. As Nick Kyrgios might say, salty. <laughs> yes. But kind of amid those shots that he fired, there is actually some really revealing, interesting stuff in that press conference. He he was very open about how he had completely botched his pre-season. Uh, he said, I didn't have the best preparation. That's on me. Poor management. I did some things in the off-season, which I won't do again. My, mo- my body's not in good enough shape. Uh, I played basketball and I hurt my knee. And then he was really questioned a lot about the need for a coach. And reading these quotes now, four years later, he still hasn't ever really properly had a coach he says the coach is always a question mark for me I think that's one area where I obviously need to start taking it more seriously there's not anyone in the top 100 without a coach except for me that needs to change pre-season's important part of the year you build your foundations for the rest of the year I didn't do that and it's on me Um, so kind of a classic Nick Kyrgios press conference you've got these you've got these moments these lines where he's being really sarcastic but actually mm. he's also giving you a real insight there into into who he is and how he feels it's uh it's very interesting i thought i remember seeing the papers the the next day after that performance against seppi um and let's just say they didn't focus on those more sort of reflective mm. and introspective comments it was it's pretty savage from the Australian press. And look, there, there was reason to criticise that performance. Absolutely. I, think, I, I seem to remember you and I had a bit of an argument about him after that match. I think you, you were just done with him <laughs> for, for, for his <laughs> behaviour as he walked off that court. Uh, um, I mean, he obviously reeled you back in within about three months because, you know, he went uh, on that amazing run with Miami, didn't yeah. he? Shame like the, the cycle of self-flagellation. Yeah. Oh, we, and I've I've had my I've I've done my circuits with him as well. Um. <laughs> but you were still you, were you big picture more optimistic about I can't him or remember. no? You just I, remember I, having I, a row with me. I just remember having a row with you. Right, That's okay. it, really. You were being a curi- uh, an early days curry optimist. Yeah. What yeah. else was happening, Matt? So we've arrived at day four. Day four is the first real day of of shocks you know we've had some interesting storylines some some excellent matches but day four is where it really takes off i think uh first match of the day as we've already mentioned is is joe conta beating asaka 6-4 6-2 and i remember feeling the same as you i think there's probably been three times where i've thought joe conta had a chance of winning a slam and the 2017 Australian Open was the first of those. She was just in the most incredible form and and had completely developed a, a winning formula that, that that worked for her. And I remember Asaka really praising Contra after the match and, and really talking her up. And then later in the day on the Rod Laver Arena is 
a huge result, a, a seismic shock, and it's world number 117, Denis Istomin beating six-time champion Novak Djokovic in five sets. Djokovic's earliest loss at a Grand Slam since Wimbledon in 2008, and the first time he'd ever lost to a player ranked outside of the top 100. Istamin gave one of the great lines of the tournament afterwards where he said, I, I just feel sorry for Novak. I was playing so good today. Um, I just I they loved, loved that, that Djokovic. Loved that line. <laughs> As I said at the start of this podcast, it's, it's an interesting time for Djokovic. We don't really know where he's at in his career. And I, I found a clip from the podcast where you two are you two are reacting to that match, trying trying to diagnose what is wrong with Djokovic uh, and talking about your experience of watching this match. Just a word of warning on behalf of you two in terms of these clips generally, a lot of name dropping going on during the 2017 Australian Open. Quite a lot of name dropping in these clips to come, but really interesting. Absolute (laughs) stitch up. (laughs) So here we go. This is your assessment of that match immediately afterwards. It was hard to fathom from Novak Djokovic. Look, Dennis Istomin played really, really well, but there is no way he should should have been challenging Novak Djokovic. I mean, even on his best day, he doesn't really have the game to challenge Novak Djokovic. It's just not a good matchup. The seismic ripples are still reverberating, aren't they, around here? It's difficult to sum up just how big a shock this is. And had it not been for what happened in Doha, I would have found today more easier to understand had it been sort of a continuation of what we saw from the end of last season from what we saw in in the world tour finals final against Andy Murray it would have made more sense to me what doesn't make sense to me is that we saw certainly the old Novak Djokovic in terms of spirit in Doha and why couldn't we see that today because we we didn't really see that today how he lost you know it's a familiar story, isn't it? The the plucky underdog challenges the top the the top seed, one of the top seeds. But then, as soon as the top seed gets a bit between his teeth and gets some momentum in his direction, as Djokovic did, winning the second and third sets, you think, oh, okay, no, this has been an exciting match. We're all very grateful for that. But normal service is resumed now. How he went on to win the lose the fourth and fifth sets is very bizarre to me. I. I watched the, prepare yourself for some name dropping, but I did actually watch portions of the match, sat in between Boris Becker and Mats Volander. And uh, Boris wasn't giving too much away. He wasn't, you know, letting it all go. He obviously still has a whole load of fondness for Novak Djokovic, wishes him well. But, I mean, his basic assessment was he's just flat today. And both of them, these two greats of the game didn't really have any more of a scientific explanation than that it's weird isn't it flat that was sort of it you know and and they were they were talking amongst themselves about it's just awful when you come out and you're flat isn't it what are you supposed to do about it and I'm thinking surely you find a way to get yourself pumped up but no they were they were saying it's just one of those things that you just hope it doesn't happen on a day that's really really important now I do believe that had Djokovic of a year ago come out flat he would have found a way to not be flat by the final point. That's that's the issue here. But yeah, it, it was. Uh, I can't believe it actually happened. Really, not that I thought that 
Novak Djokovic was nailed on to win this title. But of all the, you know, looking at his potential route through to the latter stages, of all the people you thought could possibly challenge him, nobody was looking at Dennis Sisterman, were they? No, I, I, I remember seeing Dennis Sisterman walk out onto the court and I must remember, I remember thinking, oh, I hadn't even realised Djokovic was playing him. That's how little it had registered on my um, radar that this was a match coming up and that this was a threat. It wasn't a threat. There was no threat there as far as I was concerned for Novak Djokovic today. Well, I was absolutely wrong. First of all, have to pay enormous credit, I think, to Istamin, who played the match of his life and he just didn't dip, he didn't blink. I think it's very easy to only analyse why wasn't Djokovic like Djokovic normally is and, and that's obviously the, the biggest storyline here and it's, it's my first instinct is Djokovic of a year ago doesn't lose that match no matter what Istamin does and I still believe that. However, you know, the guy played fabulously well but trying to get to the bottom of what is wrong with Novak Djokovic is... We will never do it, and he's not telling us. And maybe he doesn't even know, but there's something wrong with him. I mean, he's not this, this guy is not right at the moment. I mean, this, why isn't he at the level he was a year ago? It happens. It happens. Bjorn Borg walked out of the 1981 US Open final, never won another Grand Slam tournament, basically retired. Um, you know, Roger Federer has gone through that awful spell around 2013, 2014, when he was losing to, to all sorts of people. Nadal, over the last two years, has lost the confidence with the forehand. I think it's so stark to see a guy win four Grand Slam titles in a row and look a year ago like he just couldn't be beaten. I, I'm pretty bereft, really. I mean, other than to say, I just think he's lost the edge because how many times can you go into the reserves and when you've dug deep all these times and there isn't the same cause for him he's re he's reached all the peaks good analysis aren't it <laughs> <laughs> he's I mean, aged very well yeah i mean yeah. i do think um well, I can't exactly remember what point the, the elbow became really apparent as an issue. But, I mean, he admitted later, didn't he? He did that interview with Simon Briggs about burnout. Just being – he just lost – he lost his edge. Um, but it it was a massive shock. It, it's, it's, it's quite good to have listened to that rather than try to remember now because at that point he was such such a – big deal in terms of dominating the sport but okay Murray had reeled him in at the end of the previous year but four four slams in a row I mean says everything doesn't it yeah and he'd beaten the world number one in his warm-up tournament mm. yeah yeah in uh, in the Doha final yeah that was the first of my uh, garden square reaction videos <laughs> the, the Djokovic loss that's never been seen by us since no. until today <laughs> four years in the phone uh what happened next, Matt? Well, the other big thing that happened on that day was that Lucic Baroni came to people's attention for the first time in this tournament as she beat Radvanska 6-3, 6-2. Radvanska was the number three seed. It, it kind of feels oh. like ages ago that she retired, God. but she was, she was still a, a real force 2017. Um, and this was... The first time Lucic Baroni had reached the third round of the Australian Open since 1998. This this was one of the most incredible stories, really, of these of these two weeks. The re-emergence of Lucic Baroni, someone who had had this 
meteoric rise really as a as a as a teenager in in the late 90s uh, i think she won australian open doubles with hingis and she became the youngest player ever to defend a title she was 16 years old when she defended her first title and then in 1999 she reached the semi-finals of wimbledon and then disappeared really she had lots of personal problems an abusive father and she just wasn't wasn't around for many years and threatened a few comebacks but this tournament was the first time where she properly made a name for herself again mm. Mm. I, I remember yeah. you feeling I, I knew embarrassing little embarrassingly little about the Mariana Lucic Brony story and I remember you filling me in on it and I remember thinking how did I how did I not know about all of that um it, it's even even in the uh the the genre of you know really desperately sad and tragic tennis parent stories it's it's one of the worst of those it's really horrifying and and mm. i remember being very taken aback at hearing the story and immediately becoming really invested in the mariana lucic baroni storyline at that tournament which which panned out well for me and for her. So I think the shockwaves from that day were were felt particularly the next day. And this is kind of the next point I have. Federer plays his third round match the day after Djokovic loses. And I remember feeling this at the time, that the whole dynamic of the tournament shifted for Federer when Djokovic goes out. Because Djokovic has been... Federer's obstacle for the last few years. He's beaten him in Wimbledon finals, a US Open final, a Australian Open semi-final. He cannot get past Djokovic. And I don't know whether it was as perfect as this, but it seemed like as soon as Djokovic went out of the tournament, a weight lifted from Federer's shoulders. He felt liberated and he played an astonishingly good match after a couple of rusty matches. He destroyed Thomas Burdick, who was a top 10 player. That match was being really hyped, you know, a, a, a potential threat for Federer here. And Federer just made him look silly, really. I remember, mm. I remember, the, I remember the amount of drop shots he was hitting and the way he was getting Burdick off balance. It was suddenly for the first time, I think people thought, OK, Federer, Federer is, a, is a real threat in this tournament. Yeah, I think it was at best 50-50 in terms of people saying that Federer would win this match. Mm. Uh, I think Burdick, in, in the eyes of many, was the favourite. I mean, the guy has not played for six months, and he, he's not fit, and he's not looked very good for the first two rounds. I must admit, coming into the match, I don't recall thinking Djokovic's defeat makes any difference to Federer, personally. I don't recall feeling that. Now you've said it, it makes sense. Uh, and... I I just focused, I suppose, on the performance of Federer in isolation. Mm. It fe it felt to me suddenly it clicked, and I, I didn't know why. Now it may maybe it was maybe the Djokovic thing ha happened, but you you saying that he made him look silly is is right because it was. I, I remember laughing a lot during that match because, <laughs> and and Burdick was laughing. Burdick was like. Well, what is this? I mean, you know, I've played this guy a lot of times. He's got a lot of wins against Federer. He had a period when he was beating him more often than not, um, around 20, uh, 2010, something like that. Um, but, he, but he was made to look cumbersome, like an articulated lorry up against a Lamborghini. 
Um, it was um, it was incredible what Federer did to him. Mm. I think it was it was the first sight of Federer's improved backhand. I think as well in yeah. that match, which would go on to become a feature. I did think after that match, as early as it was, I thought he could win this if he plays like that. Who's going to stop him? You know, he's playing. He's playing. That's the that's the best performance that we will see all fortnight. Is what I thought. Mm. The next day is the day that Joe Conta thrashes Caroline Wozniacki, which we've made reference to already. Wozniacki said afterwards that she thinks Conta has a real chance of beating Serena if if they meet in the quarterfinals. Kind of kind of backing up everything that we've just said. Um, that was also the day Nadal beat Alexander Zverev in a, a highly anticipated third round match. Lasted over four hours. I think that was probably the first time I'd ever really, truly realised the potential of Zverev. I mean, he'd, he'd been he'd been he'd been talked about for a long time, but I don't think I'd ever seen him play so well against a top player, and he really did play well. I, I remember thinking that the reason Nadal won that was the five sets. He was he was able to outlast him. I think I think Zverev had some physical problems towards the end of that match, but tennis wise, Zverev really really impressed in that match against Nadal. Hmm. Yeah, I I, th- I thought Zverev might ha- have him actually at two sets to one. Uh, I was commentating and I remember being courtside low down, and you know Nadal wasn't quite right yet. You know he was lacking confidence. Zverev looked bang up for it, um, and actually th- th- those latter two sets were, um, were 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 quite important. I think for 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 Nadal, I think they probably gave him a lot of confidence. Mm. We know how. I mean. It- Confidence is more important for Nadal than any other top player, mm. I think. I, I, I completely agree with you. I think actually the fact that he was tested there and came through it, again, again I, I can't claim to have been saying or thinking this at the time. It's very much of the benefit of hindsight. But I think those third round matches for, for both Federer and Nadal were big, big turning points in their, in their tournaments. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. 
Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. So after Nadal and Zverev and their five-set epic, I thought, you know, that's a fair bit of drama, Matt. But uh, day seven would make that all look a bit tame, as I recall. <laughs> yes, this is where things get really wild. Just <laughs> just an extraordinary day. One match after the other on the Rod Laver Arena, full of incident, full of drama, full of big implications for the tournament. Uh, and the first of those was the biggest of all, really. Misha Zverev beating Andy Murray. Seven five five seven six two six four. When I think of this match, I think of a of a sort of ambush of just sort of <laughs> coming to the net time after time with a hundred percent commitment to that tactic and executing it. Because I would back Murray against that style of play. Murray's traditionally very good against left-handers. He likes a target, and yet as very pulled that off so perfectly that Murray couldn't find the answers on that day. And uh, Zverev served and volleyed 119 times in the match, which just is totally, totally different to any tennis that we see today, really. Uh, Taylor Townsend-esque. Taylor Townsend-esque, exactly. Uh, Taylor Townsend against Hallett at the US Open a year later was, was another example of it. I cannot remember what we said about this match and result, David, on the podcast at the time. Matt can probably tell us, but I suspect it's it's a, a result that we would view very differently with the benefit of Andy Murray hindsight, don't yeah. you think? But yeah, probably. I mean, actually, just by the, by the way, stylistically, I, I, I think I agree with Matt. I mean, I, I, I'm fairly sure I was on Five Live because it was middle weekend. I remember doing updates into the football at the weekend and telling everybody how Murray handles this sort of game comfortably, you know. <laughs> Yeah, that he loves playing <laughs> serve volleyers and lobbing them into death, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, that made me look a bit stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah. I mean, in hindsight, Andy Murray's last chance to win a slam. I mean, I know he had that French Open, but it was always a tough ask for Murray to win the French Open, especially if if Nadal was there. And that was the French Open 2017 where where his hip was finished. But, okay, his hip was finished then, but it was, you know, the, it was a degenerative, cumulative sure. injury. It was affecting hip, him in I, this I, tournament. I, I don't want to rewrite history and take too much away from Misha Zverev, but it absolutely has to have been a factor in that match. He was world number one. He was, 
you know, we were going on what we'd seen at the end of the previous year, that Andy Murray. But realistically, actually, take 2016 out of it. 2017 Andy Murray, mm. even before the French Open, it wasn't, it wasn't quite... Well, right. he, got, he had was shingles, it? didn't he? In in the spring, oh, yeah. he got unwell a couple of times, and 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 yeah, in hindsight, years later, I think he puts his off season as as mm. having overtrained in mm. that in that off season between being world number one and playing that event. I mean, he'd had all that run of matches in order to get to world number one as well, hadn't he? All those wins, and and I just remember seeing him against Vero, how angry he was on the court that day. He was so frustrated, he couldn't understand. I think he couldn't handle playing like that. You know, hot, humid, sort of sweaty day. And and Zverev was brilliant. I mean, Misha Zverev was fantastic, exciting. It was real. I remember how excited. Pat Cash was alongside me in commentary about the style of play of Zverev that day because it was just total throwback. That is exactly what I found when I went back to listen to you two oh. talking about this match. I was <laughs> I was expecting you to be quite down about it, but the opposite was true. I think you were both really swept up with the performance of Zverev. And yeah, this is what you said at the time. Oh, no. It was swashbuckling serve and volley tennis, the likes of which we haven't seen at an important stage of a Grand Slam tournament. I don't think maybe the only the only similar performances that I've seen like that would have been Sergei Stokowski serving and volleying Roger Federer off the centre court at Wimbledon in 2013. That's the sort of performance that he produced that day. This was Edberg-like. This was Rafter-like. This was Pat Cash came in our studio afterwards and he said he he, he was. Okay, you know, he likes Andy Murray, but he was glowing because he'd seen somebody play the sport like that. Well, so was Greg Rozeski in the Eurosport studio. You know, the reaction was supposed to be, oh, goodness me, DEFCON 1, <laughs> Andy Murray's out. And Greg just said, it's just so wonderful to see someone play tennis like that. And he, and he is right, you know, Pat Cash is right. It is, Misha Zverev has run a, won a whole load of new fans today. It was, you know, I think it was yesterday I, I uh, talked about um, you know how how these sorts of conditions, the new balls, perhaps favour the more compact player. How compact is his forehand? There's no take back at all. Although it's weird, that that it's, it's, it's weird. You wouldn't I mean, coach it, but it is compact. I was giving him a really hard time in the first few games because I, I don't think I've seen a full match of Misha Zverev before, and he was and he was three one down, uh, a point for four one for a double break for Murray, and he didn't take that opportunity. And you're looking at that forehand, you're thinking that forehand cannot stand up over the course of a match. The the idea that he would beat Andy Murray over five sets, well, it was four in the end, wasn't it, seemed, would have seemed ridiculous at that time. From a British perspective, a disappointment not to have Andy Murray still in the tournament. But I don't care. I, I, I mean, I, I sort of feel sorry for Andy. I know there's many people listening to this will be saying, oh, you know, we're gutted about Andy. But it was a joy to watch somebody play tennis like that. Absolutely. I, I feel the same. I mean, obviously, I'm here working for British Eurosport. You're here working for BBC Radio. You know, from a British perspective, it is a shame. But from a neutral's perspective, from a tennis fan's perspective, there is something joyful about such an open draw. I can't remember the last time that really genuinely happened. I mean, yes, OK, at Wimbledon, we saw Djokovic tumble out. But, but we haven't seen the top two men's seeds in a Grand Slam fallout before 
the quarterfinal stage since the French Open 2004 when Roger Federer and Andy Roddick uh, both lost early. So this is sort of uncharted territory for recent tennis and uh, I'm looking at this big screen now and I'm wondering if the Federer and Nadal final might not be such a pipe dream. Oh, yes, please. Good one, Catherine. That was Matt (laughs) Roberts-esque with that stat there, wasn't it? Definitely, I definitely got that from some kind of producer or something. So thank you, whoever by, that by might By the way, been. that was Can so, we end the pod there? That, that was victim of the moment <laughs> stuff, talking about how Mishas Verev's win is good for the tournament and all that. I mean, look, much as yeah, I, I mean, much as I like the guy, total bummer. And much as much as he's a wonderful player to watch on that day, and his serve and volleying was great. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just it's one of those that yes, it was great to watch at the time, but it just duffed up the whole draw in other ways uh, and, and I also, not the thing about it was that wasn't a tactic that he specifically deployed that day for Andy Murray and and executed to perfection that is how he plays every tennis match that's his only and option that's his only option and with all due respect there's a re- reason why his ranking was where it was and is where it is and has been where it has been for his whole career during which he's been playing that style of tennis by and large these days that game and the way he executes it isn't good enough to to beat top level players there was a helping factor that tournament which was that they had sped up the courts uh, mm. it was it was a really big talking point throughout this tournament that the courts were quicker the conditions were faster and it it did favor the more attacking players and it's very of really was rewarded for his game style, I think, by by the conditions, by the courts. I, th- I think that line from me on, on the pod stemmed from the fact that I was asked to do a live piece for Eurosport. Into, so they had the studio uh, back in London, Felton, to be precise, a, gl- a glamorous hotspot, uh, very near to Heathrow. That's, um, <laughs> that's where the Eurosport uh, studios used to be. Um, so they had Rob Curling presenting in the studio there um, and I was kind of their on-site presence feeding into the studio and they sort of in the shock aftermath of Andy Murray's right just in the moment of defeat I think it was um, I think he came to press straight away and it was immediately after that um, I had to set up for a, a live hit um, and I remember it being a total scramble, didn't have a chance to set up the lighting pro- properly. You're quite limited with where you can do those pieces uh, in, in Australia, more so than at other slams, the sort of designated spots. And it's always a tough balance because, you know, you're aware of the need to engage the viewer and the desire to, to make them care still about the tournament. That is your job, to make them care about what you're reporting on, but equally not trying to convince them that it's not an absolute bummer for a British audience to, to see the world number one who happens to be a Brit lose in the fourth round to a bloke that probably most people watching have never heard of. Um, and I remember just sort of a throw, throwing it in there at the end of the report, hey... Look at the draw, a Federer-Nadal final, in theory, is still on. And I think I remember the producer sort of saying, oh, good one, um, as uh, as I came off air. So I thought, oh, well, that, that, that went down well. I'll, uh, I'll rehash that for the pod. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and nail it. 
Yeah. Yes, I thought you'd like that clip. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> that was the, and that was the day that Federer beat Kane Shikuri in that five-setter, which... Now, Federer won that match against Nishikori in five, but that was a very different feel of match, to me at least, to the one he'd had against Burdick. And I and I, th- I thought, oh, good win. But I, I sort of, I think I was swept along by the Burdick win and I was expecting him to do the same to Nishikori. And going five, I thought, I actually thought, that's probably him done. I don't know about you, but... Mm, that I think I had a slightly different feel, because I... Cause I Federer was still playing really well against Nishikori. He just had a, a couple of bad lapses of concentration. Um, he, he started the match badly, if I remember. I think he might have been four love down, five one down. Managed to get that first set back to a tie break, but then really did play well and just just had a couple of moments where he went off and Nishikori took advantage. Um, but I agree that I was certainly concerned from a physical perspective. Um, I think there were some rumours at this point that Federer had maybe slightly felt something in his first two rounds, and now he's going five sets against Nishikori. You're looking at the rest of the draw, and Stan Wawrinka's still in it, Rafa Nadal's still in it. You know there are physical tests ahead, likely, if Federer's going to win this tournament. So I guess I was, in- I was encouraged by the actual tennis he was still playing, but the physical element was certainly becoming a factor. But I think you were watching that match on the big screen while you were recording the pod, and um, that was kind of the atmosphere you could you could hear in, in the background on, on that clip. I've just remembered something we, we haven't relived about that tournament. We haven't relived David casually chatting to Federer backstage... Moments before and whilst his first match is called. Yes. David? That was a thing that happened. Actually yeah. happened. Well. Don't get all coy now, David. This is this pod is name <laughs> drop central. <laughs> yeah. I'd forgotten about that as well, to be honest. I was uh, just stood awkwardly on the sidelines, eavesdropping. And he literally looked over at the, I know we've told this story in the pod, but it bears repeating, looks over at the scoreboard in the little media area, sees that Angelique Kerber, who was the, the match preceding him, I'm sure it was Kerber, um, yeah, it was, yeah. was uh, a game away and went, oh, David, I'm so sorry, I've got to go. That's <laughs> all right, fine. And off he goes <laughs> to be- begin his journey. And David said, oh, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> well no i'd been i'd just been talking to ivan lubicic i think i was waiting to interview somebody else that day um in the in the area because the, the the tv interview area was near near the player gym wasn't it i think mm. and mm. uh and I, I remember i'd seen lubicic who was just waiting for this match to end and he he came over and I'd, and i knew him from years back and we had a, a little chat the next thing I know, Federer walks up and he starts having a little chat. Um, and then Catherine walks in and <laughs> the look on her face was just the best. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it was quite something. Anyway, let's whiz back forward in time. But yeah. I remember that that night. Do you, do you remember the order of matches that night? Was the Van der Wey Kerber match... The after final match. Federer. It was after because yeah. fe- we watched 
David Federer and Nishikori together on that hill, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah, the closing stage. We were waiting for that match to end so that we could record the podcast. We waited for that match to end, recorded the podcast. I remember Lucy... uh, producer with Eurosport and a good friend she had she had waited around for me she'd watched the Nishikori match with us and then waited around for me while we recorded the pod and then as I think you had headed off and then presumably to edit and upload and stay up for the next six hours um and uh, we were loitering loitering there deciding what to do and uh, a couple of fans were leaving and they came over and said, hey, we've got to head off. Do you want our tickets on the Rod Laver Arena? And as as broadcasters, we don't really get access to press seats on on court at the Australian Open. I, I love that tournament. But until last year, when I was there for the podcast with Matt, I barely saw any live tennis. I, I saw some on the outside courts where it was more of a free-for-all. But on the show courts, I, I barely saw a ball struck on the show courts. So this was quite a big deal. And we thought, can we do this? And we thought, yeah, we can just take our accreditations off and be fans for the evening. We've both finished work. So I went in and watched David thinking, well, you know, watching live, that's no big deal, is it? You were probably commentating on it or something. But for me, that was quite a big deal watching that match seeing it live and seeing seeing the defending champion go out and it's funny we when we were preparing for this pod and going through that tournament and matches we wanted to relive and moments we wanted to relive none of the three of us could remember who the fourth semi-finalist was on the women's side we remembered Venus and Serena obviously we all remembered the Mariana Lucic Baroni story and none of us could get Coco Vanderway. Yeah, who was awesome, wasn't she, in that mm. tournament? She did play amazing tennis, actually, and um, full of attitude as well, and right in everybody's face, smashed Kerber off the court, smashed Muguruza off the court later on, you know. Um, and it was quite something that, that she... I, I thought she was going to go all the way, I must say, the way she was playing. Crikey. That's wow. a big call. I did, yeah. The way she—I mean, I can't remember what I said on the podcast. Probably completely the opposite. <laughs> you were probably hedging. Probably. She was so unapologetically confident, mm. yeah, in her own abilities. I, I mean, now I just hear the name Coco, and I just don't expect Vanderway to follow it. <laughs> oh God, that's so so damning. Had we ever heard of Coco Goff at that point? I wonder if she had become somebody we were aware of on the junior scene at that point or not i'm not sure uh, might be too early possibly i think Mm. 2018 i think 2018 was when yeah Mm. she would have been 13 i think in 2017 even for her that would have been a bit i mean i'm sure some people were aware of her but i doubt i was Mm. but so mary losing and kerber losing on the same day meant that it was the first time since the 2004 French Open that both number one seeds had lost before the quarterfinals. And the fact that it happened on the same day, on the same court, just hours after each other, is just yet another indication of, of what a sort of outlier this 2017 Australian Open was. Um, and I think this was the time, you know, we heard... Catherine there on the podcast mentioned Federer and Nadal, 
the possibility of it for the first time. It was it was around this point in the tournament, day seven, day eight, where the possibility is becoming real. I spoke to our friend and colleague Andrew, who is a is a massive Venus Williams fan. They they share a birthday, and uh, he's he's a massive Venus fan. I didn't and, know that. Yeah, and and he said that this was the time where he allowed his mind to wander <laughs> and the possibility of Venus being able to have a really strong tournament was suddenly becoming, just becoming more possible. He was sort of daring to dream about that, about that happening. And the next clip we've got, I think, reflects that, that mood, that feeling. And this is, a, this is a chat that Catherine had with Andy Roddick. By this point, you, you'll hear the questions you're putting to Roddick are about this gathering story of, is this a throwback slam? Are we going to get Federer Nadal? Are we going to get Venus Serena? And I just, I just think it sort of captures the mood quite well of, of this middle portion of the tournament where these, all these storylines were converging and, and becoming quite real before us. I learned a long time ago not to be surprised by Roger Federer <laughs> or anything he, he's capable of. Um, it, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, the, the joy he still gets from it is, is insane. You know, he, he talked about, I was reading his, his first match in Perth. He was talking about jittery going down there and, like, the bell. I mean, it's just, it's just great to see. Um, you know, time is, time is undefeated. Um, but he's, uh, he's putting up a pretty good fight against it. <laughs> Does this kind of feel like a bit of a throwback tournament? A lot of people talking about the different conditions this year, the different balls. Do you think, you know, almost the, the fates are conspiring to create this throwback Australian Open? We've got Serena and Venus and Roger and Rafa. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, I've always been a huge fan of, of, of different conditions. I don't know that we should play similar conditions, similar ball speed, similar across 12 months. I, I like the variation. It, it, it allows for a roll of the dice sometimes. As you saw Zverev and, and Murray or Istomin and Djokovic, where someone can really be aggressive, kind of flatline and just play in, insane risk tennis and, and have it come up, come up good. Um, you know, I, I'm, sure, uh, I'm sure Roger wasn't too disappointed when he got here and hit for the first time, though. <laughs> Roger Raffa is still in the draw. Everyone is already thinking about the mere prospect of a Roger Raffa final. What would that be for tennis? Well, I, I think it could be the most historically significant match ever. Um, if you think about where they're at as far as 17 and 14, let's say Rafa walks off a winner in that matchup. 17-15 with the French Open around the corner, he's back in the game. He's back in the conversation. Um, you know, Roger wins. It's eighteen fourteen. I don't know that there's enough time to, to make up that difference, and he's probably gonna, you know, sit on that uh, that record for for a long time. So it's it's uh, it's fascinating. Um, I know the tennis world would want to just reach out and give that matchup a big hug, <laughs> um, and and also when when they're playing their best finals of a Grand Slam. You know, they, they might end up playing in round of sixteens when you know they're at the tail end of their careers, and that'll be great too. But in form, playing well bit of a throwback uh it'd, it'd be amazing especially when you know i was certainly part of the conversation when there were questions on if we'd we'd ever see them in prime form again against each other just finally before i push you for a prediction on the men's side i have to ask you about serena venus and coco vandaway holding things up for the american women how about them it's nuts to say i think coco's played the best of anyone this far in the tournament um you know and uh with venus i mean getting to the semis after 14 years i mean just the persistence and when she was 70 in the world and having uh, you know, autoimmune problems and everything, I don't, I didn't think she would ever be at the 
business end of a slam again, and you know, she, she loves it, and she's out there doing it, and it's just it's 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 amazing to me. Um, you know, the, it, 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 this this tournament's proof of why these people are icons and legends of the sport. Whether it's Roger and Rafa or Venus and Serena, we expect it from Serena still. But um, you know, they're, they're, there's a reason they have certain definitions next to their names, and it, it, it's coming up uh, this event. Finally, then I'm going to push you. You're a punchy guy. I'm going to get a punchy answer from you. I hope who who's winning the two titles here. Gosh, it's so tough. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think I, I think any tournament Serena goes into. I'm I'm happy. Uh, choosing her, I, I'd be lying if I said I could say anyone on the men's side with with confidence. I think uh, it all depends on matchups. You know, if, if Roger gets Raonic in the final, I actually like him because I think that's a good matchup for him. And I've seen that matchup a lot of, uh, or a very similar matchup a lot of times. Um, you know, Roger can be playing great. We've seen it before, but the matchup with Rafa, whatever what Rafa does well, bothers Roger more than what anyone else does well against him. Um, so. Roger can be playing great, but it doesn't change the matchup, especially if Rafa's in prime form. I haven't seen Rafa this good in three years. Um, you know, even maybe two years when he won the French Open last. But, I mean, he's, he's playing with a belief system right now that was, hasn't been in the last year and a half. He looks, like, he looks like vintage Nadal. So that matchup hasn't changed. I, I, if Rafa gets through Milos, which I think is a tall ask, it, it's all based on matchups, and you're asking me to predict a matchup. But uh, I like Roger if he doesn't have to play Rafa. Uh, I like uh, Rafa if he, if he doesn't lose to Milos. Well, that all aged well. Yeah, re- relatively. Ne- nearly, Andy. Nearly. But I enjoyed the uh, grilling. <laughs> and mm. It was quite grilling, wasn't it? Refusing to let him go without <laughs> saying exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> oh, it came over me. Very funny. I was, I was swept up in it all. It's great. He went big on Vanderway too, David. Yeah. Well, he did. I, I just remember how her, her tennis was brash in your face and she was just going to rip it from you and i was surprised she lost to venus williams in the semi-finals and of course she, she reached the u.s open semi-finals that year as well the year that slain stevens won and then she, i know she's had bad injuries but she has completely disappeared yeah i mean completely they were, they were really bad injuries as yeah. well i mean that but i mean and i think she's not she's this as somebody who needs to be able to keep playing. And the moment mm. that her legs were taken from under her because of those injuries, you know, she wasn't stable on, on the court. If you look at the way she plays, it's a very expressive game, very ambitious game. Um, and needs she needs balance. She needs that foundation. And I just don't think it's been there ever since, really. So that that was day nine, that, that interview with Andy Roddick, who was there for... I, th- I think he was there... For the Hall of Fame announcement, yeah, he was, he was, being he was honored, getting yeah. inducted. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was a day, as you said, David Vanderway thrashed Muguruza six four six love, and that set up this semi final with Venus Williams, who'd beaten Pavlyuchenkova to become the oldest woman to make a Grand Slam semi final since Martina Navratilova in nineteen ninety four at Wimbledon. Um, and on that same day, Wawrinka and Federer had set up their semi final clash with a couple of straightforward wins over Songa and Misha Zverev. Um, day 10, if there was a slightly disappointing day or a slightly quiet day, this might be the one. Uh, the men's matches were straight sets. Dimitrov beating Goffin, Nadal beating Raonic. That was big for Nadal, I think, turning the tables on Raonic after he'd lost to him in Brisbane. The Lucic Baroni story just kept going as she beat Pliskova in three sets and then from a 
British perspective, I guess the the headline match of the day was was Serena Williams against Joe Conta in the quarterfinals. And David, you said earlier you were surprised in the end by how sort of one-sided that match was. Serena won yeah, it 6-2, well, 6-3. I felt Serena came out and decided she was going to show Johanna Conta what it's all about that day. Mm. I think she'd heard enough of the hype. She'd heard enough of us lot and all the British media saying how well Conta's playing and giving her a chance to win. And and I think Conta was shocked that day. I think she mm. went out there really thinking she'd got a good chance. I think it's like a a boxer who's a contender going up against a champion and thinking, I'm really, I'm ready for this. And then just getting chinned in the first round and realizing <laughs> what they're up against. Um, and Serena was unstoppable that day. But I also think that performance and what you described there was a mark of respect for Joe Contra and how well she was playing. You know, think yeah, about I what, what yeah. I said about Patrick Moratoglu, you know, that was on the eve of the tournament that he said that, Serena's card was marked about Joe Conta's form. <clears throat> Serena Williams knew that she needed to play her best tennis, knew that she had to be on it for that one. She'd been yeah. eyeing that match up from the start. And that's why she came out so hot. These greats, I think they occasionally just hear or read these murmurings about how well somebody's playing and what that might mean when they play them. And they steal themselves and they just... The greats will want to send a message out <laughs> to show everybody who's who's boss. Mm. Mm. So that takes us to women's semi-final day, and this is the day I I think of as Venus Williams's day. <laughs> I'm actually surprised I couldn't remember Coco Vandeweghe reaching the semis because I remember this moment so vividly of Venus reaching the final. I've just sort of forgotten who her opponent was um this is one of the lasting images of this tournament for me in my mind venus's celebration when she beats coco vandaway first of all again i'll 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 quote andrew here because he can he can say it better than me he said venus's final was the match against vandaway in so many ways and it's hard to admit that but even at the time it felt like that because serena was almost certainly waiting in the final but this was Venus's moment and she lost the first set to Vanderway on a tie break. And then for someone who's so stoic, usually, she came out in that second set, gritted her teeth and fought. And I think she fended off double digit break points in those second and third sets, kept Vanderway at bay. She was going for huge second serves. Her serve was working better in that tournament than it had been for years. And then when she finally won it, as I said, this this reaction, this celebration, just this outpouring of joy, of ecstasy. This, you know, she'd waited ten years almost for this to be back in a Grand Slam final. It was her first one since 2009 at Wimbledon. She was 36 years old, the the oldest Australian Open singles finalist in the Open era. And yeah, it's one of the defining images of the tournament for me. I, I hadn't seen Venus Williams do that for years, probably since she beat Davenport in that Wimbledon final that we relived uh, last summer where she sort of bounced up and down uh, sort of with joy it was it was a very similar thing she was twirling she was glowing and that moment is venus williams's moment 
Mm. Mm. Foreshadowing alert here, but seeing elder great champions be childlike mm. and have a sense of wonder, wide-eyed wonder about winning is a glorious and infectious sight. And that was one moment of that. And, and there was another of those, which, which spoiler alert is to come. <laughs> and, um, as it turned out, Serena would be waiting in the final because uh, Serena beat Lucic Baroni 6-2-6-1, made it to the final without dropping a set. Serena looking absolutely incredible. One of my least favourite things about the Australian Open is probably the way they schedule those two women's semifinals mm. during the day on the Thursday and then the men get the night session slots on the Thursday and Friday for their semifinals and the men's semi-final that night was Federer Wawrinka and that was a that was another five-set match for Federer after his his five-setter against Nishikori in round four I don't actually remember a, a huge amount about this match it was a slightly strange scoreline Federer took the first two sets then you know those physical worries that we perhaps mentioned early on in the tournament seemed to be coming to bear. He he lost the third set six one. He lost the fourth set six four, but then somehow dug in and managed to win the fifth set and make it through to the final. I I remember vividly him taking an extended off court injury timeout between the fourth and fifth sets. Mm. David, would you have been in the yeah. commentary booth for that? Yeah, uh, I remember Pat Cash calling it something like legal cheating um, and that being put to Federer in his press conference afterwards, which is always, I always feel is a bit sly, you know, taking a pundit's line like that and putting it to the player, you know. Um, but it's it's what a lot of us a lot of us do. I'm sure I've done it before. Um, but... And and Federer was very much defending himself and saying, "Look, I'm the last person who goes for the trainer and all this sort of stuff, and I've never retired from a match." And and he's he's quite right in many ways, but it was very clear that he was just making sure that he could just have a bit of a break and maybe maybe disrupt the other guy a bit. Um, the, I'm sure there was a bit of that in 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 that decision um, because he'd, he'd won the first two sets, he lost the next two, he looked uncomfortable he didn't look fully fit to be quite honest at the end of that semi-final but he still had enough to beat Stan wasn't a classic though that match I don't I don't recall that being a classic no I mean the fact that I remember it most for that injury timeout not a ringing endorsement but I mean obviously it was a you know an enjoyable watch Mm. the bar was high that fortnight wasn't it (laughs) and the classic was the next day yeah the Mm. classic was the second men's semi-final Dimitrov against Nadal that was the match of the tournament. I agree. I think this is the highest quality match of the tournament, the one with the sort of sustained drama all the way through, both players playing brilliantly at the same time. Um, how do you remember that match, Catherine? You inviting me to name drop? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> if you like. <laughs> I, I remember watching a lot of it with Mats Valander, who was just fanboying about the level of tennis. Not on air, obviously, in the uh, in the Eurosport green room. And he was just, you know, he, I've said on the pod before, watching Mats Valander watch tennis 
is such an uplifting thing because he's just he's just like a little kid. He loves watching good quality tennis so much, and I just remember his eyes being wide with sort of ecstasy watching. I mean, he was quite literally on the edge of his seat. He was on the edge of his sort of bonquette um, <laughs> for that match. And it's funny, I, I went for a walk on Monday. That's what counts as a a, uh, a really big time social engagement these days. I went for a socially distant walk on Wimbledon Common with, with Lucy, the, the producer I was working with at that Australian Open. And I said, we're reliving that Australian Open uh, on the pod this Friday and she you know she, this wistful look came about and she said oh those were good times weren't they um, and and I said yeah and I you know I I said you know what what jumps out at you and she that is the match that she most remembers that's the match in the moment and the watching experience that immediately jumped out for her and I can understand why quality wise for for two players sustaining their best level simultaneously over five sets that was the one yeah I, I didn't commentate on that match I remember I was I was doing updates into the sports desk I just didn't happen to be on the commentary for it um, but I remember watching every single ball on the TV mouth wide open and loving it I was loving every ball of it I think partly because it was just a great tennis match but also it was the moment that Grigor Dimitrov was showing what he was made of and that because we'd spent we'd been running the podcast for five years by that point and hyping this guy to the heavens because we loved the way he played and yet so often he didn't really deliver um and on that night he delivered he showed so much heart to go with ability and f the physicality and the ability to run with Nadal side to side for hours on end and uh, I also thought, uh, I mean, that actually, that was one of the matches I did actually kind of get a prediction right. I said it, I said it'll be <laughs> a classic, and yet, but Nadal will win in the end. And I just, I think, I don't, I don't think it was possible for Dimitrov to win it in the end because he did everything he could. He, he played incredible tennis, and that shows what Nadal is like when he's, as Andy Roddick was saying earlier, when he's in form like that. How do you stop him? Well, obviously, we'll find out how somebody would stop him. But <laughs> the thing is, in that match, he it's like, how do you rip the bone out of his jaws? How do you do it? Because he's not going to let go. And uh, But it was just – that was one of, the, one of the best matches I've ever seen. If I, I'd probably put that in the top five or so. And there was this sense that perhaps Dimitrov had provided a blueprint for Federer. Hmm. I remember for sort of how to harm Nadal because, you know, the comparison had been made for years between Dimitrov and Federer. But I remember thinking that I didn't think Federer could match what Dimitrov did physically in no. that match. That that was what really struck me, the way Dimitrov lived with Nadal physically. And I think you saw the effort that was required by Nadal to win that match and his reaction at the end. I, I remember he, he collapsed to the ground as kind of as though he'd won the tournament. It was it was a celebration of that scale and I think that was just just an illustration of uh of the effort that that Dimitrov had put in that night. Um so we've made it to <laughs> 
to finals weekend. Um, we've got the ninth Grand Slam final meeting between Serena and Venus and the ninth Grand Slam final meeting between Federer and Nadal. Serena and Venus go first on on the Saturday and Serena beats Venus 6-4, 6-4 to overtake Steffi Graf's open era record. She wins her 23rd major title, gets back to world number one. Not a classic match, I think. You know, we know that Serena-Venus matches can sometimes be a little awkward. This was... This I felt was almost a uh, sort of ceremonial and sort of I think people were just so happy to see them in the final again. I don't think people were too concerned about the quality of the match. That was that was my impression. I don't know. I don't know how it felt on the grounds. Yeah, that's a really good way of uh, talking about it. It did have a slightly community shield vibe about it. <laughs> um that it was it was a sort of experiential thing rather than a results-based thing. And I, again, it's editorialising after the fact, but of course we now know Serena Williams was was two, two and a half months pregnant, I think, um, with her daughter. And Venus was one of the only people in the world that that knew that. And look, we, we can all imagine and talk about what that dynamic must be like, but none of us can even get close to, to knowing what was going through going through their minds on that particular day and of course because we didn't know at the time we've had no opportunity to to ask them about it and whether they would open up about it is is another thing altogether but i mean we know that it's a very different dynamic for venus as the protective older sister than it is for serena serena's always you know going back to our first ever tennis relived episode their first final in miami um, Serena's always had that slightly more competitive edge. Um, so for Venus to be trying to beat not only her sister but her niece or nephew as well, uh, <laughs> I can only I can only imagine, and I suspect that's a part at least of why it had a a slightly different feel about it. Yeah, mm. uh, you're right. I mean, I feel like her, her, their matches generally uh, that. There's always going to be that element, the fact that we all know that they love each other to bits and, yes, they want to win the tennis matches, but they don't want to upset their opponent. Um, if they could do, if they can win and not upset their opponent, that's the ideal world. Um, but even so, I mean, it, it did still, it still felt like a great big deal, really, to, to have these two in this final. It felt like one massive celebration, really, of their careers, of their achievement, of their family's success. Um, and that was with, without us even knowing that Serena was pregnant. Um, so what an additional story we would eventually get. But um, I think it's also worth remembering that Serena was still still felt like the best player in the world, generally. Like she won the tournament, but she, it still felt like if she plays well, she wins the tournament. And Venus, this was out of the blue for her. It wasn't out of the blue for Serena. Yeah, I mean, Venus... So looking at her run, she she faced three opponents ranked outside the top 100 and another ranked 87. Um, you know, it was it, the draw broke open for her and she really took advantage of it and played some brilliant tennis, especially against Pavlyuchenko and Vanderwey. But of course, Serena 
was the best player in the world. She won the tournament without dropping a set. Um, I did I did go back and have a look at the match. There were four straight breaks to start the match, and Serena actually smashed the racket in the third game. Maybe, I don't know, a sign of tension. There was a, there was a neck cord that she didn't quite get up to, and sort of all in one movement, she uh, sort of smashed her racket while trying to get to the ball. It was, she just styled it out. Um, but I think what I remember about this occasion more than anything and why I describe it as kind of a, a celebration of their rivalry and their relationship with each other is because of the speeches that, that followed the final. Um, I just think they, they perfectly sum up the relationship they have with each other. And obviously, as you've mentioned, Catherine, it would, would take on this extra special quality in the, mon- in the months that followed as we, as we found out about Serena's pregnancy and the fact that Venus was one of only five people who knew about it. Um, so when you, when you consider all that context and you hear these speeches, I just think it makes them extra, extra special. So here they are. Good evening in Australia. Hello around the world. (laughs) I am so happy to be able to play in front of you all tonight and to um, thank you. (laughs) Thank you to my team. Love you guys. Y'all rock. Selena Williams. (laughs) That's my little sister, guys. Congratulations, Serena, on number 23. I have been right there with you. Some of them I lost right there against you. <laughs> yes, that's weird, but it's true. And <laughs> but it's, it's been an awesome thing. Your win has always been my win. I think you know that. And all the times that I couldn't be there, wouldn't be there, didn't get there, you were there. I'm enormously proud of you. You mean the world to me. Sister Isha, where are you? Oh, dang, she didn't come. I get it. It's too hard. I get it. Isha, I love you. Lindrea, my sister, I love you. Mother, dad, I love you guys. I, a God willing, would love to come back. Thank you for all the love. Thank you. I really would like to take this moment to congratulate Venus. Um, she's an amazing person. There's no way I would be at 23 without her. There's no way I would be at one without her. There's no way I would have anything without her. She's my inspiration. She's the only reason I'm standing here today and the only reason that the Williams sisters exist. So thank you, Venus, for inspiring me to be, to be the best player that I could be and inspiring me to work hard every time you won this week. I felt like I got a win, too. So thank you so much. Um, it, thank you. And... She deserves an incredible round of applause. She's made an amazing comeback, and I definitely, definitely think she'll be standing here next year, and I don't like the word comeback. She's never left, so she's been such a great champion, so thank you, Venus. Ah, oh, lovely, yeah, isn't it? That's totally just put a smile on my face. Mm-hmm. Says it all. Mm. Yeah, in particular, Venus. Yeah. I love her saying, that's my little sister. Mm-hmm. That's really nice. Magnus met his little sister today and it was a <laughs> different reaction. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Um, 
I guess the final thing to say on this is throughout this whole episode and this whole look back on this tournament, I've been trying to figure out whether at the time I thought of this as a one-off or whether I thought it was going to be a building block for the season to come. And obviously in, in Venus's case, it very much did lead to a season where she reached the Wimbledon final, she reached the Wimbledon, uh, the US Open semi-final. And I think those are two results which probably are the ones that got away a little bit more than this one for Venus, especially the US Open. But for Serena, obviously, we found out in in April that she was, I think, 20 weeks pregnant and she had been pregnant during the Australian Open. So we didn't really find out whether Serena would go on to win more majors that season because she didn't play anymore. And I just think you can look back on this tournament now, a few years on, as really ushering in a new era for, for women's tennis. You, you think of the first-time Grand Slam champion that there have been since this moment. Ostapenko, Stevens, Wozniacki, Halep, Osaka, Barty, Andreescu, Kenin and Sviontek have all won slams for the first time since this this moment. And, you know, th- this is kind of the last slam of Serena's real dominance. She might win another one, but I don't think she's going to dominate again like she was in this period. It, it was a... It was a candidate for sliding doors, wasn't it? Had We didn't know if it would be slightly sort of weird or insensitive to do a, you know, if Serena Williams hadn't had a baby. Yeah. Um, but it's it absolutely is a slide. Because I certainly, you know, at the time would have thought, if you'd asked me, will Serena Williams win more slams this year? I would have wouldn't have hesitated to say yes, at least one. So, mm. and then... And then t- the talk about 24 is put to bed. Everything has a slightly different complexion on it. So it is a sliding doors. Definitely. Mm. Yeah. Mm. We're very glad she did bring Olympia into the world. Yeah, because she's wonderful. <laughs> but, but yeah, actually, you know, I hadn't... When you reeled off all those names, Matt, who've won slam titles since then, yeah, that hadn't really occurred to me. Um mm. It's That's an extraordinary shift. Mm. Right. And then... We are here. We are here. I, I don't really know what to say. Well, <laughs> let's say this. We, 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 spent, we spent about two hours watching it last night. Um, Rafael Nadal against uh, Roger Federer in the final of the Australian Open. And um, we watched the final set together, didn't we? And um, I, I saw an expression on Matt's face, David. I don't know about you, that I've... I don't think I've ever seen before. It was really, it was it was wondrous. Yeah, utter contentment and exhilaration. Yeah, um, he was just. And, and how many times have you seen it's that like a set, kid, Matt? A kid lot. Being shown a Disney film for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, I can't count the number of times I've watched that final set. I've I've watched it an awful lot. I mean, a lot. You know, very soon after it happened, I, I certainly had it on repeat for weeks and months after it happened it's sustained me through my year abroad um but yeah it is it is it is a fantastic set of tennis there's so many reasons why it's fantastic um the opening sets are compelling and they're high stakes and they're intense and you're very aware that history is on the line but 
neither player is playing well at the same time. It's 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 a sort of classic tennis problem, and it, it's therefore a bit patchy. Those first four sets, I would say. Um, I think I felt that at the time. I certainly think that looking back. But the fifth set is is a masterpiece, and it stands up with any any tennis I've ever really witnessed in terms of everything on the line, the tennis they both play, the atmosphere. The early stages of it feel extremely familiar in their rivalry because Federer is conjuring up magnificence after magnificence, yet he's not doing it on the break points. And Nadal is saving his best tennis for those biggest points. And he saves five out of five break points to start to start that final set. Yeah, and... Federer's playing, drawing gasps from us mm. watching last night, four years on, and from the crowd, and yet he's a breakdown at the start mm. of yeah. that set, which really says it all, I think. Um, but, I mean, when we, when we consider everything that Andy Roddick said in that interview, it still stands up. Nadal is yep. bringing his game. He is bringing what has dominated that rivalry to the court that night and he's playing high intensity he's executing for the most part and yet Federer has found the answer on the night um and uh I mean watching it back and it's the first time I've ever watched that final set because I I wasn't commentating on it and I got sort of trapped in a corridor outside the commentary <laughs> box without any windows or anything um <laughs> i bore you with all the technicalities but anyway that's where i was so i didn't see any of it um but watching it last night was watching federer just his own defiance his own i'm i don't care what you do i am going to swat it away for a winner get out of my way get this ball out of my way and that one and and hitting the living daylights out of it and the thing that really struck me was how his, and I don't know all the technicalities, but how the backhand looked, this short, stabbing, bunting, flat-faced backhand that he just smacked down the line or cross-court repeatedly, and without sometimes without a full flourish on it, just timing it, timing it off the high-bouncing, spitting, topspin forehand of Nadal, and just squishing it cross-court, you know, uh, this it's 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 it reminds me of how uh i think it was jürgen des a former um atp trainer once told me how he'd got the strongest grip of any player in the top 50 back in in federer's teenage years and and uh and yet he got these twig like forearms and you're trying to work out well how has he got this incredible grip strength and i'm watching him hit this backhand and and you're seeing that grip strength on the ball. He's absorbing all of this power from this muscle man at the other end of the court, and yet he's taking charge of these rallies. Uh, it's um, it was Federer at his most majestic, I would say that that set of tennis. He was consistently half volleying ground strokes from the baseline. He did not give an inch. It was it looked like. It looked like there was an electric fence six six inches behind the baseline for preventing him <laughs> from from breaching breaching that that area. 
It, it really did. It was like a sort of training exercise in you're not allowed to cross this line. Extraordinary. Of course, he's been able, we've seen him do that on, on the forehand side consistently throughout his career. But that's what Nadal's been able to do before before this tournament, either push him back on that backhand or get him sort of hitting a defensive shot or an uncomfortable mistimed shot. But he just, the conviction in him to half volley the single-handed backhand it did it looked and then and then get it in get it into a open up the court and just hit into it opening the shoulders it looked for Vrinkeresque or Wurinkeresque Wurinka retroactively adjusting our pronunciation of Wurinka is <laughs> I'm finding it really troublesome <laughs> um, it was Wurinkeresque Edit that if you like, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I think one of the things we've seen through watching back quite a lot of old matches of, of Federer and Nadal is Federer feels like he has to go for a lot on his forehand because he can't hurt Nadal on the backhand. But in, in this match, he can. And it happens throughout the match, really, that Federer's got this newfound confidence in his backhand. I read at the time that Federer drove 87 of his 91 backhand returns in the match and he only sliced back four of them he completely put that shot away which is Federer's bread and butter the sort of chip slice backhand return but he knows against Nadal that he gets hurt when he does that and he had this confidence and this conviction and this ability to hit over the backhand and it was serving him well throughout the match but we get into that fifth set and Nadal, exactly as you said, David, has started to take control. He's starting to win the important points. He's in the lead. And then the reason why this match will always stand out is 3-1 down in the fifth set. Federer perfects his art, his craft, so urgently and so perfectly and puts together five games of tennis that are five of the best games he's ever played. And he's got 10 years of history saying that he can't beat Nadal in Grand Slams. He hadn't, hadn't beaten Nadal over five sets since 2007 at Wimbledon. All that history that he's, that he's playing against, and yet he perfects his game. And I just think it's this, it's this, perfect, this perfect exemplar of Federer's grace and his fighting spirit in tandem with one another. Because he gives that line after the match, about how he would be happy to have a draw with Nadal. But Federer's eyes are saying something extremely different during, during those games. There's a, there's a ferocity in Federer's eyes, an intensity, and he goes out and he grabs that match. And it's something that is, is remarkable to witness him do that under all that pressure. And Nadal's eyes, when he says that, are like, oh, for goodness sake, well, if you'd have been happy with a draw, this is, this is <laughs> wasted on you then, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and his eyes are saying something different as well. His yeah. eyes are saying, yeah, right, mate. Of course. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> I mean, it's a fantastically sporting moment. Uh, we, we watched that ceremony together and the, uh, the, the speeches afterwards. And, and Nadal just looks crestfallen, doesn't mm. he? He can't, he, it's, they're long, those 
ceremonies. They're really long. And uh, there was a moment when he gets called up to speak and you, you said, Catherine, it's like it's become a cathartic experience for him to talk now because he started to lighten up <laughs> talking to the crowd and thanking them and realise, no, actually this, you know, this was a good good fortnight and this was a good day. But he was so, so upset. He wanted it so much and it wasn't wasn't to be. It was actually Matt that said that. Was it? Okay. I would have taken credit, but Matt's edited so many uh, kind clips in for me <laughs> that uh, I will do the decent thing. <laughs> so this was Federer's third five-setter of the tournament. You know, all these all these worries about his physical state, and I think there were genuine concerns. But yet, no man has ever won more five setters en route to a Grand Slam title than three. That is kind of the maximum. He, he beat four top 10 players in the tournament. He was the first player since Mats Verlander in 1982 to beat that many top 10 players en route to winning a slam. Just so many so many little stats like that, which just showed how, how extraordinary this feat was of Federer's. Um, Shall we end our our journey through through the 2017 Australian Open by hearing from Mary Criller? Oh, yes, please. Here's Mary with the last word on this this match and this tournament. I said this as I was covering uh, the 2017 Australian Open that I had never been to a major that was full of so many tremendous storylines. Um, Every bit of that was great. It was like traveling into the Wayback Machine because all these great champions were showing us what they what they still had left, you know. Um, God, and, and I loved the speed of the court in 2017. It had some real speed in it. It was great. I mean, to see, I mean, Roger first, he'd had, he'd had back issues and then he'd had the knee issues, which had kept him out of, uh, of that big chunk of 2016. So... All of a sudden, he looked younger than, than ever in Australia. Um, and Nadal, I mean, Nadal was amazing too. And and I don't know if you were around for the time, the only time Nadal won the Australian Open. He had to go through Roger in the championship match there. And remember when Roger was crying as he was getting his runner-up award. Um, and Rafa was comforting him. Remember all that? This, Roger said, this is killing me. We knew Roger was a crier. I mean, you know, <laughs> we've seen that from him, you know. The guy's, the guy's a, a softy. But here's Rafa needing to comfort him. So now, all these years later, they're playing for the championship. And it was a hell of a match. It was a hell of a match. Um, and the thing is, when, when Rafa went up 3-1 in the fifth, didn't you think he was going to win? <laughs> I thought he was going to win. Um, and all of a sudden, Roger Federer, you know, of the early 2000s, like shows up again and wins the last five games of the match, like without even blinking, it seemed. It was, and, and I believe Roger Federer when he said after that performance, I, you know, there are no ties in tennis, but if there were, I would share this trophy with Rafa. I believed him when he said that. I think he would. I mean, that's what their friendship and that rivalry had become. They knew each other's greatness, you know. I think they enjoy going up against each other's strokes, maybe not on clay for Roger, but on any other surface, they really get to test one another to the fullest. And that's the kind of match that was. 
Um, yeah, that 2017 Australian Open was exquisite through and through. What if Mary's saying that? I'll take it back. They they, they were perfectly happy to share it. Um, <laughs> and uh, but but uh, I do feel that they appreciate each other enormously, not just as players but as people. I think that they do. They both love being in each other's company, just like McEnroe and Borg do. They're buzzing, and Chris Everton, Martin and Navratilova, they love each other. You know, they really do. There's enormous warmth between them. And uh, if there's not another Grand Slam final between them, that one that one will do. You know, that that 2017 will stand forever in the, the memory, I think. Yeah. Mm. And, of course, it it's set up another 12 months where they, they dominated men's tennis. Um, I think they won the next five slams between them. And, actually, that was something we commented on, wasn't it, watching this match back. I think ESPN brought up a graphic that, obviously, Federer was on 18, Nadal was then on 14, and Djokovic was on 12 at the time. So to think that Nadal has actually won more Grand Slams since this final than Djokovic, I hadn't quite got my head around that. Yeah. And and somehow surprising. mm, It is surprising to me. I mean, he's obviously won four French Opens, but... But you kind of feel... I I wouldn't have been at all surprised if that loss kind of defeated him a little bit or knocked the stuffing out of him, you know? And it... And here he is, four years on, and he's won more of the more of the slams than any of those other two, and he's he's now level with Federer. I mean that. Imagine you know when you bear in mind again what Roddick had said, and I would have completely agreed with that. That eighteen and fourteen that feels like yeah. too big of a too big a gap, and here he is. They're both on, and Federer's won another two, even beyond that age. And it's still not enough. He can't put the guy away. <laughs> <laughs> they are extraordinary, aren't they? We li- relive this again next week. <laughs> ah. No, we'll Br- have actual tennis next week. Yeah, I tell you what, br- brilliant job, Matt. Oh. Yeah, extraordinary. I mean, I don't, if you're still listening to us after more than two hours, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for staying with us. And, and a reminder that Matt did that research twice. <laughs> yes, he did, um, and I, and yeah, I, I think he could have probably done it, just reeled it off out of off the top of yeah. his head, to be honest. Uh, but no, I, lo- I actually loved listening to your contributions in that Matt. It was so interesting because we 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 didn't get to hear them at the time because you weren't with us mm. back then as a podcast contributor on the show. And well, you know, I don't want to embarrass you, but that just shows what you add to me uh, as another example because I, I've just really enjoyed your take on on it for the last two hours plus um and i hope you have as well i hope uh, everybody's enjoyed it because it's been an absolute treat for me um and yeah we will be back on monday we're recording tonight uh, at 10 p.m friday evening our time in the uk um and and, and- Sorry, one last thing that I've forgotten to say. I, I, oh, yeah. I can't believe we've we've got this far. We're recording on the 29th of January. 29th of January is the date of the Federer and Nadal match oh. at the Australian Open. Oh. Things have changed a bit, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Oh, dear. 
But, you know, <laughs> we're still chatting and I'm still having a pint. Yeah, it, it might not be the 29th of January by the time this is uploaded. No. So <laughs> a long a... edit ahead. Yeah, indeed. But, but, uh, but that's how much he loves it. He gets to listen to it all again. <laughs> not to worry. Um, and yes, we will have live tennis to talk about on Monday. And my word, will we? God, there'll be too much tennis. It'll be all a bit discombobulating. <laughs> the Crocodile Dundee and the Crocodile Dundee 2 trophies. <laughs> They've come up with another next one. Week. Well, yeah, and it's not called the Crocodile Dundee, even though I gave them that idea for free. Yeah. They've thrown oh, it back dear. in my face. Um, so, yeah, there's going to be tennis tournaments everywhere. There's three WTA events next week. How many <laughs> ATP events are there, two of those? So yes. there's five no, there's of them. two plus the atp cup plus yeah, the atp three. cup so the six events to keep across next week <laughs> brilliant uh so we'll have that to talk about on monday um we'll also have the australian open draw to look forward to later on next week uh if you're enjoying the tennis podcast do tell people you know and get them listening um because uh, we want to spread the word as much as we can and, and maybe they'll enjoy it as well um we've got a few uh, little bits of business to just uh, uh remind you about as well we have our own mascots i have rogue who is an exceptional cat uh catherine has who catherine zeus zeus what a name Zeus yeah, the, the name, dog. Name does the talking. Yeah. And, and I, I have received an email while we're recording this podcast with some more photos of Zeus. Oh. Uh, Nicholas is, is, is back with him. I think they've been separated for, oh, for a number of months. Uh, Good I think man, Nicholas. Travel, travel restrictions and everything. Uh, so, yes, they've been reunited and we have new photos of Zeus, which Brilliant. is great. Billie, Billie Jean bounded up to uh, German Shepherd. In the park yesterday, I mean, I mean, I was thinking that's the equivalent of sort of me bounding up to like that snowman at the end of Ghostbusters <laughs> in, ter- in terms of size difference, relative size difference. <laughs> she was desperate to be friends. I mean, the Alsatian yeah. wasn't really. <laughs> well, give me an equivalent. There's no animal that big. <laughs> That's amazing. But what would you have come up with? Not that. <laughs> That's so good. Uh, Scousel Mouse, all right, Matt? <laughs> yes, Scousel Mouse. Your magnificent pet mascot. Uh, we'd like to say hello to Cookie, by the way. Cookie yeah. has been a really top draw uh, pet mascot for this week's uh, series of Tennis Relived shows. Uh, we, have we got some shout-outs, Matt? Hey, what? Cookie's a Venus Williams fan. Oh, yeah, Cookie. Good on you. Venus Williams yes. fan. Yes. This is, nice this, this is her show. Hey. And yes, we do have shout-outs for Andy Yu. Hey, Andy. Andy's often in touch with us on Twitter and on social media. Well, and Andy he's... me. Well, oh, Andy me good. or Andy you? Uh. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Sorry about that, Andy. <laughs> don't, don't worry about her. <laughs> Andy's a nice bloke. He's always in touch. And uh, yeah, very, very enthusiastic uh, listener. So good on you, mate. Oh, excellent. Uh, Connie Simon. Hi, Connie. Ooh, like Paul Simon. Indeed. Briggs. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the famous ones, yeah. <laughs> Paul, Solly, Hole, Connie. Thanks Done. for your support, Connie. <laughs> 
He's on Twitter, Solihull Simon. If anyone wants <laughs> yeah, to follow I him. That. I said that last time. <sighs> and finally, a shout out for Kathleen Sharkey. Kathleen. Oh, come on. That's a good name. That's that, isn't really it? snazzy. That's the mm. best name. Oh, Kathleen. Kathleen, almost the perfect name, but still, you know, great. Mm, right. <laughs> oh, it's a lot like Catherine, isn't it? And like the one in Romancing yes. the Stone, Kathleen Turner. Is that Kathleen Turner? Yeah. yeah. Great actress, yeah. yeah. Sharky. Oh, I'd love to be called Sharky. Oh, too bad. Mm. It's been taken. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so there we are uh, thank you all for your support that's you know that's the important bit really we're just hugely grateful to, to everybody who's, who's shown us the support that they have and and to you for listening we, we really appreciate it we really hope you're enjoying these series of shows and we'll be back big time next week with live tennis to talk about see you then flexibility is great that's why there's yoga Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.